Hello, my name is Michael John McCarthy and you are very welcome to The Dream Frequencies. In February 2021, I invited a number of writers and storytellers to speak to me about their history of dreaming. I asked them to share with me their experiences of recurring dreams. In particular, I was curious to learn if the nature of their dreaming had changed over the course of the past year, if the influence of the pandemic and its attendant lockdowns and isolation had made its presence felt in the content of their dreams. The following three episodes are comprised of excerpts from these interviews. Together, they provide an opportunity for the listener to tune in to the dreams of the interviewees and to share in a journey that begins in the final moments before sleep, continues through deep sleep and dreaming, and culminates in the first moments of waking the following morning. To better immerse yourself in the dream frequencies, I would encourage you to listen using headphones if possible and to close your eyes for the duration of each episode if that feels like a safe and comfortable thing to do. Thank you for listening. sensation. I quite like that little moment of falling into sleep. I think because I have had trouble sleeping in the past with some insomnia, sometimes I have to make a conscious effort to reach that state of drifting away. I like turning out the light. I look forward to it. Other times, if I'm so tired, it just happens and I'm out. So I don't recall the process of falling asleep. I just know that I'm awake, now I've got to sleep, and then I was asleep. I think the move from consciousness into sleep is Fairly sudden. From the language of my mother's tongue, dreaming is entering other worlds. Sleeping is going into other worlds, so there's that spiritual aspect to it. And I guess the mechanical part of the mind, you know, not the imaginative one. There is the recurring dream. Have I done what I need to do? So it involves now because I'm a parent. It's around the kids. Oh, I'm out somewhere, but my kids are not here. I, I left my kids, you know. <laughs>
Before it was about other things, about an exam that I haven't prepared for properly. I do experience recurring dreams. I quite often have a dream where I'm sitting in one of the exam halls at the university and I haven't studied for the exam. Now, that's, I think that's quite a common dream. I'm not somebody who's kind of throughout history had these recurring dreams beyond, I think, the kind of recurring dreams that lots of us have. The exam anxiety, I think, probably afflicts everyone until the day they die. Where they think that they've missed that business studies exam when they were 15 and are going to be sent back to school to repeat it. Even though I went to university about 35 years ago, I finished. I still have that dream. For the longest time, um, my responsibility dream or <laughs> kind of anxiety panic dream was of um, losing a hamster and then going downstairs to a basement to find uh, the floor moving, covered in lots and lots and lots of little hamsters. <laughs> <laughs> Which obviously goes back to when I was about seven. <laughs> I have had a lot of dreams about being attacked by animals. The animals vary. For a while, the animals were like thousands and thousands of mice. They're proper adrenaline fueled, heightened, frightening, my life is under threat kinds of dreams. I'm often in all kinds of different locations. And the animals are sometimes huge, genuinely, you know, tigers. All different kinds of animals. I'm dog-phobic, really dog-phobic. Like, it's not a joke. And I have terrible dog dreams. One really vivid one, I recall, there was a dilapidated old house. And because it was full of holes and we were in this wild environment, animals would get in and I had to get them out round the clock, 24 hours a day. I have dreams about dogs where they start biting and attacking me. And I had to fend them off. And for some reason, one of the bits of kit to hand was one of those very, very heavy-bottomed mic stands. Those big, round, metal-bottomed mic stands that you screw into and it was tipping up the mic and trying to get, like... Now, I'm going to say an armadillo out of this house. Th the funny thing about dreams is it's not about whether it was an armadillo or it wasn't. It's what my brain thinks is an armadillo. <laughs> and I just remember arming myself with this mic stand and trying to chew the thing out of there. Yes, I am. I'm trying to fight them and they, they, they get hold of me and they're biting my hands and I'm trying to get away and I'm trying to get help and nobody's helping me. I'm always alone in the task of having to overcome the, uh, the, you know, the animal or the animals. Yes, I'm always overwhelmed by it. It always feels impossible. But I hate those dreams where I'm shouting out for help and you end up, you're, you can feel your throat straining in your sleep. And then sometimes I wake myself up because I am actually crying out for help. Yeah, and it's properly frightening. Like, if I don't manage it, we'll die. It's, it's wake you up scary.
I think I might remember dreams a bit more. I used to not remember anything. It seems like there's a lot more animalish imagery. I might have a slight like fear of birds. Beaks, like bird beaks. Where I stay, there's robins. Robins love coming indoors. They're the most likely to cohabitate with humans. At one point, there was actually two in the living space. Trying to gently coax the robin out became part of the daily routine. Robins did make it into my dream. They're like gently nuzzling with their beaks. But their beaks were massive. One of their beaks was massive. Like a toucan. Big orange arced beak. But it was a robin. I would normally have a big aversion to pointy bird beaks in my face. But this was like an olive branch extension pleasant dream. <laughs> Ever since I was a little girl, I have had this dream. It comes and it goes in waves, uh, but it's always, always there. I'm sure it's a dream that lots of people have, and it's the dream where you're flying. But it's like you're swimming, swimming through air in a breaststroke motion. And it's always in this breaststroke motion. It's me, and it's as if I can see myself. Sometimes it's as if I am looking at it through my own eyes. And other times I'm looking at it from the outside. Often I fly over forests. Because I've grown up both in Kenya and in Scotland, the trees are all very mixed. Oak trees in amongst uh, baobabs. I've kind of created it just by imagining and sort of fusing these two worlds together. I always thought maybe that sort of dream would disappear, but it never did. It, it still happens even, you know, decades later. How it has changed is that sometimes the reason for this kind of flying through the air is different. It might be that I'm leaving something or sometimes there's something or a place that I want to go to. So there is, uh, I suppose, a sense of purpose. They're always really positive dreams. And even if it's something that I'm trying to get away from, there still isn't a sense of, of fear or anything. It's just time to, to fly. <laughs> and so I go. Certainly in lockdown, I've been getting increasing bouts of insomnia. Really interrupted sleep. 
I know that I dream through those periods because I have the sensation that I'm dreaming, but I haven't remembered um, very many of those dreams. If you wake up gently, you kind of remember more. It always feels like when you're abruptly woken up, something really nice was about to happen. <laughs> you know, you know. I think there were several changes about dreams occurring during lockdown. They're far more vivid. There's a lot more going on. What I have noticed since this last lockdown, there are a lot of characters that I'm interacting with throughout the course of any dream. A lot of people. Recently, they've just been about being with people, hanging out together all sorts of situations. Crowds of people in a gig, people in a theatre. My brain is kind of reaching around from years back, from people I hadn't seen in a long time. Old colleagues, old, old school friends are, are making appearances. I dreamt about my old friend Peter Hurst. I was meeting up with him, but at a miners' strike demo. So masses of people. My world has got so much smaller and my dreamscape seems to have got so much larger. I think I'm just missing being around people. A lot of the dreams are also about that failure to touch crowds, failure to connect. Thinking about being in spaces with lots of people really does feel like a dream rather than kind of reflection of some reality. I live in a small village now. The occasions that I've been in crowded places since the pandemic started, I've felt very anxious, but not in my dreams. My dreams are obviously missing that kind of human connection. I spent the first few months of the pandemic, actually five months back in my hometown of Longford in the middle of Ireland. It's not a particularly big town. There wasn't a huge amount of people. So a lot of my dreams did involve people and being around people and a kind of nervousness because I think I felt quite away from the world and I wasn't really sure what the rest of the world was doing. There's a type of dream characterised by feelings that I think this situation has turned the volume up on a wee bit. Like a sense of threat, um, a fearfulness, a loneliness, um, cravings for things, experiences that you weren't able to have. And then often my brain is quite lazily reach for what is also just going on that week in the flat or whatever and just like smash the two things together. I will find myself incorporating my everyday life into my dream which I find quite dull as well because my everyday life is dull enough so it's quite dull to have dreams that involve your everyday life. You know the actual the stuff that's happening in real life is dull but the processing of actually all the fears that accompany it and the anxiety is intense and the dreams are way better than the lived experience. The sensory deprivation that is such a big part of our experience at the moment is your, your subconscious almost chooses actively to defy it and says, that thing you can't have, have it now. Those are really, really gorgeous moments, I think.
you ever dreams like when you meet one of your idols? Let's say, like, I don't know, Elvis Presley. And you become their friend. And then you're being normal with them. In the dream, there is a doctor's station where you could do a sort of walk-in checkup. And I walked in just going, look, I'm really anxious, I'm concerned about everything. And there was a man all bandaged up and he was being attended to by other people. And I remember thinking, that's David Bowie in there. And then the, the man mumbles something. Now, I don't say anything, but the man mumbles something and the doctor goes over there and then comes back and said, Mr Bowie would like to say hello, Mr Thomas. I might meet Bob Dylan and we end up just chatting normally about coffee or something. <laughs> I mean, I met David Bowie. That's not bad, is it? And he recognised me. situation and it's almost like the the situation has changed the characters and people everyone else except you seems to know that everything else has changed that's probably like quite reflective of the like sensibility that we all have right now where the world is just changing incredibly rapidly the, the pace of it pace of the news cycle has changed so dramatically. I wonder if that's similar, that's seeped into your like subconscious. All of a sudden you're like, what am I doing now? I have no idea. I'll just go along with it. <laughs> so then I'm off to Newcastle. There's been trains, a lot of trains in the dream. Travel. Because I can't. I get to Newcastle, I'm waiting, 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 waiting at the platform, just chatting. And I'm talking to some old mates of mine who I used to go to college with, and they're going, aren't you going to be late? So that's when I go to the theatre. It's an old musical theatre, and it's shut for redecorating. This version of the Newcastle theatres isn't there. It doesn't exist in reality. And uh, my friend... Um, Kevin Day is there, who's one of the first performers that I worked with, and Shazia Mirza is there, who's one of my favourite performers. And we're just sort of sitting there in this gallery, just going, when are the audience going to turn up? They're never going to come back. I'm sat in the auditorium with a gin and tonic and settling in and having a look through the programme and everybody's kind of looking forward to an evening at the theatre and then someone comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, what are you doing out here? You're in the show. Oh, and I don't question that. I assume this must be correct. I get taken backstage and I'm trying to ask as many questions as I possibly can about this show and what's going on and who I play in it without seeming like I don't absolutely know what I'm doing and they'll say, well, it's... You know, you obviously are playing the lead. Uh, we've all been rehearsing for nine years and we assumed you were also doing that on your, on your own time. You are ready, aren't you? And I don't know the lines, I don't know the play, I don't know what's going on. 
I know I need to go on. There's the pressure of delivering the performance, and you say, you know, um, and uh, what's you know, what, what is the the play? What it's Hamlet? You know, and I'll just try and improvise it. Uh, I'm thinking to myself, and are there ways to secrete bits of the text uh, on the stage, hidden in props written on myself? Uh, could we postpone for another night? And they're like, well, it's, the whole run's sold out, and everyone's paid a thousand pounds a ticket. And you always go on. You go on, like you walk on, and you try and play Hamlet off the cuff. You never go, this is absurd. <laughs> and that's very much a recurring dream in loads of different guises with, with the details changed. But I had a dream not unlike that last night. Another one of these theatre dreams. I believed I was directing a production of Romeo and Juliet. But all the costumes and the set dressing and everything was for a production of Miss Saigon. So, inevitably, nothing made any sense. Like in a play where you've got bits of stages and sets from previous productions. The places of my past provide easy backdrops for my dreams. So recently I dreamt I was at the leadership contest for the Irish political party Fianna Fáil an old Irish political party. And it was all taking place in the ballroom of the Longford Arms. I've never been to a Fianna Fáil party conference, but they're unlikely to have their leadership contest in the ballroom of the local hotel in Longford. Somehow I'd been parachuted into this contest. I, I was covering it as a journalist. And by parachuted, I mean I, I arrived on a parachute. And I actually hit the compare when I landed. The man who was kind of announcing who the winner of the Fianna Fáil leadership was going to be. I managed to land on top of him. And I found myself like, what am I doing here? You know, I had a microphone, I was supposed to interview people. But I also I had a personal interest because a friend who I'd not seen for many years, father was running for the leader. And it was quite surreal. It was one of the more surreal dreams. It had elements of lots of my own, uh, my work life, my personal life, the experience I had as a child. But all kind of brought into this strange setting that was a kind of this ballroom where I'd been many times uh, when I was younger. And I woke from that, missing many things actually missing my own, wondering about my friend, but also actually missing that part of my own daily life which used to involve doing things like taking a microphone and going to, to rooms that were filled with people. I wonder if collectively we're all experiencing, we're all having to go through the processing of what is actually quite a traumatic time. It's a traumatic time in the fear that we have of people close to us, the fear we have of strangers, the fear that we have of people known, the fear that we have of work, of jobs, of, you know, of collapsing and imminent doom, but also because of the simple thing that actually we're not connecting with other human beings in a way that is normal. And that normal way of connecting with human beings is a profound thing. 
It's a profound thing to touch another human being. My most exciting dreams during the lockdown were about physical contact. <laughs> Unfettered physical contact for as long as you wanted it with another human being. And that's a profound thing, to want to be in physical contact. So what I think we're generating is this enormous library of dreams where we're trying to process what we're doing, but also to reach out and experience things that we're not having on our day-to-day -day life. I think, generally speaking, my dreams have gone from Salvador Dali to Hieronymus Bosch. Whimsical floppy giraffe to full-on mouse demon. I'm definitely aware of waking almost every day with some quite vivid sensation, vivid image as much as anything. You know, fragments, bits of images that kind of stick. And I think the stickiness of those fragments feels like it's increased during the pandemic. You wake with a, a kind of penumbra of the last night's sleep and the last night's dream kind of imprinted in your consciousness. Maybe in a way that I mightn't have been as aware of or mightn't have felt as, as strong as it does now. I've been on night shift. I was on night shift last week. But if it's your third or fourth night shift in a row, you like lost the will to live by five in the morning. I was dozing off and I had, you know, there's like one of those like dozy dreams. The nights like in hospital can be quite cinematic because the lights are always crap. And it's you and the patient in this eerie ward where there's like, you know, tumbleweeds going down the corridor and stuff. I sat down in the patient. I was like, there's something in my ear. Oh, you've got octopus here. Just take it out. I like removed an octopus from her ear, just like slowly. And, oh, don't worry, there's quite a lot of it. And it's like three times the size of your head. That's fine. We had this like white, kind of quite creamy, like quite gelatinous beast just emerged out of her ear and it was like the exact same layer of the actual word and so you like wake up and you're like okay don't write that in the notes because that didn't happen removed octopus <laughs> sterile procedures in use <laughs> I got the coronavirus in March of last year it took me out of action for over a month. And whilst I was ill with it, I did need to sleep about 20 hours a day. I slept an odd sleep. The vast majority of my dreams were about just my kind of corporeal existence on one level or another and physical sensations. Your taste is replaced by one taste, which you experience all the time. So everything tastes of that one thing regardless. And whether you're eating something or drinking something or not, 
you have this taste and it is a metallic taste, a nauseating taste. It just felt like it was everywhere because it was so constant and I would lie in bed tasting it, falling asleep tasting it and then my dreams felt like there was something in my mouth, in my system that was really creating this disgusting taste. So a lot of my dreams were about having something awful in my mouth, like, you know, rotting flesh or something terrible. Knowing as well that you have this illness, the speculation as to how it started, because this is back in March, we were, we were having all kinds of speculative conversations in terms of, you know, the average member of the public. I did have a lot of dreams that I was turning into a bat. There is that dimension to the coronavirus origin almost as if almost as if I had ingested a bat or swallowed one you know like those things they tell you when you're a kid you eat your watermelon seed and then it'll just start to grow within you start growing out your mouth it was like that it was like I was I was going to turn into something from the inside out because I was so aware of this awful taste like I had ingested something There were a lot of people involved in this vampire situation. We all seemed to be in what I think might have been some sort of big youth hostel dorm room with, with big bunk beds. This youth hostel was also possibly, some of it was also a vampire castle. I remember looking at the vampire's son and thinking he must be about 500 years old, but he's disguised himself as a very, very, very boring 21st century misogynist bloke with terrible shoes. <laughs> There's a little girl who's friends with my eldest son who was there. And she was being quite cheeky to the vampires. And I was kind of admiring that, but also thinking, I think I probably need to keep her away from these vampires. They, they weren't immediately terrifying vampires, but there was something going on. This is probably a bit pandemic now I think about it, isn't it? <laughs> My favourite tree is the baobab tree. Growing up, it was very present in a lot of stories. And also its, its size. It's just this huge, immense, uh, incredible tree that is so full of, of life and, and time. I was in my house in Edinburgh, and then I noticed that there was a branch outside the window. And it was this baobab tree, and then suddenly there was no window. And then there was no house around me. I was just by the tree. I was in the middle of this space. Like a forest, but maybe not because the trees were too far apart. And this baobab tree was on its own. And then I noticed there was this tiny little uh, seedling right by the, the base of this baobab tree. And because I felt that there weren't enough trees around, I took care of it and I watered it. And then suddenly this little seedling began to grow bigger and it began to um, kind of wrap itself around the baobab. 
It was getting taller and taller, and this baobab was a huge tree, but this other seedling that I had watered began to kind of crush it almost. It was as if I could hear the sounds of this uh, baobab tree being crushed and squeezed. And then I was trying to sort of tear this other tree off it to give it space and allow it to breathe or to live again. And as I was trying to sort of tear it off, my, my fingers were, they were bleeding and I was putting scratch marks onto, onto the baobabs. I was trying to sort of prise this other tree off um, and there was nothing that I could do about it. I think that's just when it ended. There was no resolution to it. And maybe I think the panic really made me remember it. When you have a dream that hasn't resolved, or you've had a dream that's brought up characters from your life that you've got unresolved issues with or kind of questions over, that will definitely overhang into the next day, feeding into the kind of wider sense of unease that happens when you're a year into a pandemic. I dreamt there was an evil presence in the room with me. A demon or something had come into the bedroom. And I was lying in my actual bed. So it was coming through the door. It wasn't a, a you know, fully formed figure. And it came into the bedroom and it put its arms or its hands on either side of me and pinned me to the bed. Pinned me down to the bed. I was absolutely terrified. And it was going to do something awful to me. You know, that way I was forcing my neck to stretch because my arms were pinned and I woke up shouting and I was really frightened by that dream it was horrible for what it's worth Cathy that really reminds me of uh, episodes of sleep paralysis that I have experienced really? you'll maybe hear it in time but Isabel described something incredibly similar as well sleep paralysis if folk don't know is Essentially, when your brain has managed to wake up, but your entire body is still asleep. So you are aware of your surroundings, yourself, your real actual reality in the bed you're in, in the actual room you're in, but you cannot speak or move. And so it feels as if you're locked into your body. It is one of the oddest sleep phenomena I've ever, ever experienced. One of the things that tends to characterise sleep paralysis is there is a sense of a threat in the room. And a defining feature is that a presence comes to your room and either sits on your chest or pins you down in some fashion. Oh my goodness. Yep. (laughs) You get all these kinds of interesting references to it uh, throughout uh, literature and uh, bits of art history. And it's where the historical myth of both the incubus and the succubus come from. So that's a phenomenon that other people have similar uh, manifestations of that experience. A lot of the time, but not always, but a lot of the time, it can be attributed to stress. Stress can be a kind of a catalyst for that kind of disordered sleep. I think, you know, in the the past, in the pre-pandemic era where you'd wake up and you'd be able to go, oh, no, everything's okay. You know, you wake up, you're in your bed, things are okay, go back to sleep. Now you wake up and there's always this sense in your head that everything isn't okay because it's not okay. There is something more to the human spirit that we, we maybe are not aware of because of our menial 
tasks of getting by, you know, solving problems that, that meet our sort of basic needs. I love this line I heard before that, you know, we're, we're just spiritual beings um, having a human experience. <laughs> Humans are, are not one-dimensional by any means. Dreams give us an, an opportunity for our imagination to just express itself more. So there's something about that that I think is quite important. So nature, being in nature, out of the built-up space, that is very energizing for me. So yeah, that comes a lot in my dreams. Mountains mean a lot to me. There's a proverb, a very kind of popular proverb that says, you can't climb a mountain in a straight line. <laughs> you have to negotiate, you have to go backwards sometimes, you have to go up to go down, down to go up. And it's like a metaphor for our journeys, whatever it might be. It might be for the whole life journey or an undertaking that you have. For me particularly, I'm fascinated by the fact that when you're next to the mountain, you can't see it. You have to be a long distance to, to be able to see it. In my mountain dreams, I would say 20% of the time, I'm on them, but most of the time I am seeing them from a distance. Even though I'm, I'm far away, I can see small detail on the mountain. So sometimes there are some animals walking on there. I had that recently. There was a wildebeest walking and they generally don't go on mountains. So that's the dream part for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I could, I could see the wildebeest sort of their kind of grace, really healthy and walking. And yeah, as I was saying to you, those dreams when I wake up, I feel very energized. Like, yeah, there was something about it that, yeah, I just feel I wake up with a really good energy. I'm definitely aware of waking almost every day with some quite vivid sensation. The move from sleep to consciousness can have various gradations. I often feel it's like a gossamer link almost, a thin diaphanous link when I wake up between my dreaming state and my new waking state. To the extent where I can wake and regret a dream. And within which the echoes, these kind of little fragments of dreams, kind of percolate through. My dream has got red pen all over it. And what I'm left with more is a kind of sensation, a sensation of sometimes fear, sometimes interest, sometimes intrigue, sometimes excitement. And that's almost where my dreaming space kind of exists after I've woken. And I feel like that's become more pronounced during the pandemic. And then suddenly you go, oh. I'm awake. 
Thank you for listening to The Dream Frequencies. The contributors were, in order of appearance, Mara Menzies, Mark Thomas, Tawana Sitoli, Cathy Ford, Peter Gagan, Kirsten Ennis, Isabel MacArthur and Uma Nadaraja. The Dream Frequencies is part of the creative community Irish Theatre in Scotland series, a Traverse Theatre partnership with the Consulate General of Ireland, Edinburgh. The Traverse is a registered Scottish charity, number SC002368, and is funded by Creative Scotland and the City of Edinburgh Council, with additional support from the Scottish Government Performing Arts Venues Relief Fund.